teach us. And we get to hear this word together. Uh, Matt, thank you for leading us in singing today and taking us before God and teaching us to sing and share songs with each other. Uh, James, thank you for leading us in our communion today. And really, I'd like to begin by uh, saying thank you to each of our elders, uh, to Ken and James and Jaylee. You all have borne a heavy burden this year. In the midst of a pandemic, which affects us all, uh, you have uh, really, I know, behind the scenes, carried a heavy weight for the entire congregation and found a way to make sure that we could still gather and do so as safely as possible. And I know that has not been easy. So uh, thank you to each of you and to Audra and to, uh, to Jennifer and Brenda. Thank you for the support you're giving uh, to each of these men. Uh, Pat, thanks for translating for us uh, all this time. You've heard me say before, Pat has preached more sermons in the last year than any other human being that I know <laughs> in translating for every single one of us who come up. And thank you for making sure that God's word is not restricted. Uh, our, our passage this morning is from Matthew chapter 6. And so if you would, take, uh, take your Bible uh, just now and turn over to Matthew chapter 6. And there in the middle of what's called the Sermon on the Mount, uh, go to chapter 6, about verse 9, and we'll be there in just a moment. I'm sure for you, the last year and a half, and now approaching two years, has been difficult. We have been living through a pandemic, and a pandemic, by definition, means that this affects everyone over the whole world. And there's a point at which we can say, in living through something that is, quite frankly, a historical moment, there's a point at which Everybody wants to give up. I can tell you with this most recent wave of the version of coronavirus called the Delta variant, when we saw that wave coming up through the lower 48, and when we saw it first hit in Alaska, this was down in Sitka, and then it's made its way up to Anchorage. I can tell you as healthcare providers, when we first saw this hitting Alaska, it was like, it was like a punch in the gut. It was demoralizing. It was frustrating. It made many of us want to just stop. It seems like we've been spinning our wheels for so long. We thought we had it beat. We thought it was gone, and now it came back. And I can tell you right now, for those who are on the front lines, who are doing their best to treat those who are affected directly by the pandemic, this is a, this is a tough moment. Our chief medical officer for the entire state mentioned that the hospitals, like the one across the street, are in great danger right now of being totally overburdened. And this year, it's not because they don't have the equipment. We have plenty of ventilators. We have plenty of room. We have plenty of supplies to treat. But we don't have people. Uh, Over the last year, we've lost people. And it's the human resource. Those of you who work in lines of work that are service-oriented know that it's the human resource that you need. It's the human resource you protect. It's the one that you need to supply. And it's a demoralizing moment. It's a tough moment when we realize that the entire world has been fighting something that is, and the best word we have for it is, it is evil. But I don't just mean evil in a, in a moral sense. We mean bad. But we don't, we don't really have a word to fully explain just how bad this type of insult to the whole world is. Think of all the ways that the pandemic has affected us. I just wrote down this list. One, it's a pandemic. It affects everyone. For some of you, it may be a mere annoyance. For the others of you, it has been a life-threatening battle. Some of you personally 
have had versions of the infection that are debilitating. And you know what's meant when people talk about having long COVID or you've suffered heart attacks or strokes or spent weeks in the hospital. Others of you have felt this personally because you have been forced to only visit with loved ones across a pane of glass uh, in times when they were suffering and you've lost that human touch. It's affected some of you economically with a loss of business, a loss of access to businesses, a loss of workers. It has affected our justice system, and it's been a harm to the justice system because there are individuals who have been incarcerated for prolonged periods of time because of the slowdown even in our justice system. It's affected us socially. As we said early in the pandemic, social distancing is only a few inches from social isolation, and some of you have felt the weight of that. It has affected our education system. Uh, we are, uh, those of us who have children, our, our lives are constantly interrupted, either because someone in the class has contracted COVID or there's close contacts or the school's open, the school's closed. We spend most of our young years trying to train our kids to reduce their screen time and the pandemic hits, and the only way to be educated is to put a screen in front of them and teach them how to interact with others, not personally, not one-on-one, but through a screen. That has to have a lasting effect. There's developed a distrust in politics and science and medicine itself, not to mention the addition of natural disasters that occurred during the pandemic. Even today, bearing down on the coast of Louisiana is a hurricane, as strong as Katrina that hit years ago, and that hits at a time when those hospitals are overwhelmed just like ours, a time when people's lives have been disrupted just like ours, and add on top of that this threat of a natural disaster. Just two weeks ago in Haiti, there was an earthquake that was just as strong as the earthquake that hit here, but unlike here in Haiti, they don't have the infrastructure or building codes that protect people, and so thousands have died, many displaced, thousands more are injured, and they don't have the medical infrastructure on top of COVID, on top of the pandemic, and they're hit with a natural disaster. And so compound evil upon evil and harm upon harm. What word do you have to describe the harm that is caused by that type of trouble? If I had a word that summarized it, the word would be sort of a combination of these words. This year has been a laborious, annoying, harassing, malicious, harmful, wicked hardship. Do you have one word that could pull all those together? We don't have one, but it turns out in the first century, the ancient Greeks did. And that word was poneros. Poneros is the word that they would use to describe what I just said. If you could combine all of those words, the laborious, harmful, malicious, harassing, evil, wicked, it would be this word, poneros. It was used by Hippocrates, you, know, you might say the first of the physicians to describe the evil, uh, the harmed, the diseased eye, became known as the evil eye, the poneros uh, eye. It was used to describe any type of oppressive, annoying labor. It was used eventually to talk about people, because sometimes other people can be laborious, harassing annoying, wicked. And so you could point to a person 
and they would be called the poneros one, or an evil one. But this was the word that was used in the first century to describe something that was evil. So here's the question for this morning, and really the whole lesson centers on this. What do you do as a follower of Christ when you face this form of wickedness and evil? It turns out you have something to offer. In the midst of a pandemic, we've talked about having pharmacologic and non-pharmacologic ways of addressing or strategies for addressing. You are all experts now at wearing your mask in congregate settings. Now, whether you're vaccinated or not, you are now experts at knowing uh, about how to get antibodies, whether it's from the natural infection or the uh, the vaccine or from monoclonal antibodies. Uh, you know about social distancing and you know about washing surfaces. You have all become experts at infectious disease and what we call pharmacologic and non-pharmacologic strategies for mitigating the spread of the disease. But you, who are followers of Christ, have access to a strategy that is more powerful than any of those others when facing something that is truly evil. I don't mean to say that this replaces those. I meant to say that it undergirds them, and it supplies wisdom, and that strategy is prayer. Do you remember what James said in James chapter 5? James, who was the brother of Jesus. When you read the book of James, you are reading what was written by Jesus's little brother. And James, now grown up, now serving as one of the very first elders trying to help a church navigate through those early years and all of the oppression that occurred in that time, James teaching that early church about their access to a mitigation strategy says this, is any of you among you in trouble? Are you suffering trouble? Let them pray. Are any of you happy? Let them sing sing songs of praise. And you hear that could be spelled P-R-A-Y-S. In other words, he's saying the same thing. If you're in trouble, you pray. If you're happy, you pray. Is any among you sick? Let him call on the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. Oil there having both a symbolic and true meaning that today would be the same as a topical uh, type of medicine. But notice the focus. Is any of you sick? Call on the elders to come and pray. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. And if they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Do you realize that you have access to the greatest privilege of any human being? That at a moment's notice, without any planning ahead, you can go into a private space and call on the God of the universe, the creator of all that exists, and have his instant, immediate attention. You have access to pray. Well, remember that this is written by Jesus' own brother. So I have to believe the man when he says that the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. But James in his book never teaches us how to pray. He tells us this is powerful and effective. He tells us to do this. But James never gives us the model prayer. He never tells us how to pray. Instead, he would point us back to 
Jesus himself. Because Jesus is the one who taught us how to pray. In the first century, it was uh, common for rabbis to teach their students or their disciples how to pray. And it's a little unusual that Jesus didn't do this right away with the disciples, or at least it would have been unusual to them. Because it was very common for the rabbis, the very first thing they would do would be to teach not only the scriptures, but also teach their disciples a series of prayers. And there were prayers for everything. Prayers for a food, every different type of food, every different type of situation, every type of danger, every type of joy. There was this long, long list of various prayers, and the disciples were expected to learn those prayers. And so it's not or would not be unusual for the disciples to go up to Jesus. This is recorded in Luke chapter 11, and they would say, Lord, when are you going to teach us to pray like John has taught his disciples to pray? And Jesus' response to them is to teach them how to pray. And that prayer is recorded in the middle of what we call the Sermon on the Mount, which is kind of the cliff notes, you know, of everything Jesus taught. Uh, Put into that sermon, in the middle of the sermon, Jesus says, this then is how you should pray. And you, as a follower of Christ, just like those first disciples, can open up this text can read that prayer, and just like those first disciples, be taught by Jesus not what to pray, but how to pray. So the sermon this morning is simply this. I'm handing you this prayer. I'm showing you where it can be found in your Bible so that Jesus can take you, just as he did all the disciples who've gone before you, and teach you how to pray. Now, as you're learning from him how to pray, let me give you a few just hooks, a few things to notice in this prayer as you're learning the prayer. The prayer is probably familiar to you. I bet some of you have memorized it, even said it growing up. Jesus said, pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Just a little side note. I know for some of you, when you memorize it, you end that prayer with sort of an amen that says, for yours is the kingdom, power, and glory forever. Amen. That's actually a doxology that was added later. The prayer itself does not end that way. The prayer ends as you see it here. And this is what we've come to call the Lord's Prayer, or some people will call it the Our Father. And notice what Jesus is teaching you when he's teaching you how to pray. Look at the very first line. When you open up this prayer, he's teaching you how to address the creator of the entire universe. Now, you know that if you're going to address someone in authority, it's important to use a term of respect. Now, we all know each other. If I see you in the room, I may call you by your first name. You call me by my first name. But if we're in a professional setting, I should probably refer to you by your professional designation. Uh, Carrie Precheski and I were talking uh, just before the service about uh, the status of COVID in the hospitals and taking care of people. And we just said it's a real burden right now. If I were working with Carrie and we were over at the hospital, I, you know, in a private setting, I'd say, hey, Carrie, how's it going? 
But if we're there in front of patients and we're on stage and we're doing our job, I'm going to turn to her and say, Nurse Prochesky, could you help me with taking care of this patient? I'm going to use the term, a title, uh, because that's what she deserves. And it lets everybody know this is her, this is her role. This is what she does. I was talking to Jesse Elmore before the service, too. I asked him if I could do this because uh, uh, Jesse, as many of you know, is one of our police officers in town. And if I see Jesse, you know, anywhere in town, I'd say, hey, Jesse, how's it going? You know, we'd call each other by our first name. But if I'm in a hurry to get home and Jesse sees that and he chooses to use his professional vehicle to turn on the lights and sirens and pull me over, and he walks up to the door and says, you know how fast you were going? I'm not going to call him by Jesse. I'm going to say, hello, officer. (laughs) How fast was I going? You know. And if he doesn't like my answer, he might turn me over to the judge. And if I have to go before the judge, I'm not going to call the judge by their first name, even though in my line of work, I work in a uh, department of corrections where we interface with the justice system quite a bit. I know some of the judges by name. I'm not going to call them by their first name. If I'm the one standing before the judge, I'll say, Your Honor. My point is that in each of these settings, we use the term that's appropriate for the person's status. It's It's a way of showing respect. Now, notice what Jesus says. When you approach the creator of the entire universe, what is the term that you are to use? When you approach the God of this universe, you are to say, Our Father. That is how you are to think of the creator of all that exists. He is your Father. Now, you might think that Jesus is introducing something new, as if he's taking the world and introducing a new way of thinking about God. But in reality, he's just restoring us back to the original state. Early in Scripture, you'll notice that God is considered to be the father of all mankind. A quick example of that would be uh, in the Song of Moses that you can read at the end of Deuteronomy, uh, when Moses is praising God in the midst of that song, he says, remember... Or have you forgotten that God is your father, the one who brought you into existence? But somewhere along the way, people had forgotten that. They had assigned God all manner of uh, titles to show respect. And it had fallen by the first century out of favor to use the term father in prayer. But Jesus brings that back. And he says, when you pray to God, you refer to him as our father. Now notice he doesn't say, pray my father in heaven or your Father in heaven. He says, our Father. Now think about what that means. Our Father means he is everyone's, every human being's Father. But even more than that, remember who is teaching us this prayer. And when Jesus says, pray, our Father, the image that comes to mind is Jesus on his knees, about to pray, and he looks up to you, and he pats the ground right next to him and says, kneel right here. And as you kneel down, he says, pray like this. Say, our Father. And you can imagine yourself, your eyes opening, you look over at him and say, our Father? And Jesus says, yes, not just my Father, our Father in heaven. Jesus is restoring that relationship, because in saying our Father, what you are saying is not just something about God, You are saying something about you. For God to be your father means that you are claiming to be one of his children. And that's what you were meant to be. You are one of the heirs of the living creator of the entire universe. 
and you have the rightful, given by him, the rightful ability to approach him with any request. Our Father. And notice where he says, our Father, that what is to come to mind is where our Father exists. Our Father, and he says in heaven. He's using that as a hook because of what he's about to say next. But notice you're to think of God as residing in what most scholars would say is, is sort of a temple language. You're thinking of God in his rightful place of reign. This is the uh, place from which he maintains all reality and controls everything and creates. Our Father in heaven. And the reason he uses that tag, in heaven, is because of what you are about to say in the prayer. Three things. In the prayer next, you say, not just our Father, you say three things. First, hallowed be your name. Second, your kingdom come. And third, your will be done. All three of those things you ask be as in heaven, so upon the earth. The first of those is that you you state, basically, let your name, this holy name of God that's not stated here, let your name be holy. As in heaven, so upon the earth. That starts with you. Holding God's name in such high respect and regard that you hold it as set apart as holy. Second, that your kingdom come. As in heaven, so upon the earth. A statement that God is the rightful creator, controller, and the one who is the sovereign leader of the entire universe. And you say, as in heaven, so upon the earth. And then the third phrase, which is a beautiful line, your will be done. The actual phrase there is something more akin to let come into existence or let be born into existence your will. Uh, You've heard the word uh, genealogy, the study of somebody's ancestry. Uh, And the the root of that word is uh, genea, you know, or the genealogy. And that same root word is used here. When Jesus is teaching us to pray, and that's recorded as it is here in Matthew, the word that he chooses to tell us what was really meant by saying, be done, or your will be done, is this word, be born into existence. And so what Jesus is teaching us to say is, may your will be born into whatever is on your mind, to speak metaphorically, whatever is within the will of you, our Father. May that be born into existence, just like everything else that we can see and hear and taste and touch that has been created by God. And so you ask for those three things, your, your name be holy, your kingdom come, your will be done, as in heaven, so upon the earth. And then there's a transition to ask for daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread. There's a word in here that nobody really knows what it means. It's only used in two places that we can find anywhere. And those two places happen to be once here in Matthew and the other in Luke. We can't find it in any other, uh, any other writings. And the word just means something like uh, uh, our uh, for existence. And so what Jesus is teaching us to pray is to say, give us the bread to exist each day. And what comes to mind when you pray that prayer, once you've walked with Christ for a long time or studied scripture, are several different times in scripture where you see this play out. 
The first of those is going to be in the, in the book of Exodus. When you see there, the Israelite people are making their way through the wilderness, wilderness, the wilderness, <laughs> Israelites through the wilderness, and, and they start grumbling because they're hungry and they haven't had food. And you probably in your family know something about grumbling when people get hungry. And the people are grumbling to Moses, and so God says, I'll feed the people. And that's where you hear about the manna from heaven. God allows, we're told, bread to rain from heaven. So when they got up in the morning, there was this dusting of the earth, this fine material that they could collect and then make into bread. And God fed the people every day. They were not to collect more than just the bread for that day. If they took more, it would be kind of like if you leave fish on the counter overnight. (laughs) The next morning, the bread stunk and it was moldy. They were only allowed to collect the bread for that one day, except on Friday they would get two portions for the Sabbath. So they would not work on the Sabbath. And God provided bread. Now that story comes back again in the New Testament when you hear about the day that Jesus fed 5,000 people. And there, taking in his hands bread, he makes bread from bread, which is exactly the way that God has done it from the beginning. He takes wheat, and from that wheat, you plant it, it makes more wheat, and it populates the whole earth. That is how God has fed the entire world. And there on that day, you see Jesus doing that. Somebody has said that what God does uh, with really big brush strokes all the time, Jesus does there with a, with a fine point pen and shows you how he does it. He makes bread for the people and he feeds them. And because he feeds them, they decide to follow him. And they, they come up to him later and say, uh, give us bread to eat. And Jesus, you know, has invited them to follow them. And they say, well, what sign will you show us to show us that we should follow you? And they specifically say, Moses gave us bread in the desert, what will you give us? And Jesus says, don't work for bread that spoils, work for bread that lasts forever, the bread that God will send you. And they say, yes, that's what we want, the bread that won't wear out. And Jesus says, I am that bread. I am the bread of life. And so some people have said that while you pray this prayer, what should come to mind is how God has fed the world from the beginning. And the basic form of sustenance has been with bread. And what comes to mind is how God is the one who provides that. And it can't even go so far as to realize what I'm really asking for, Lord, is for Jesus himself to be a part of my day. The point there is that this phrase is more is about more than just bread. When you pray, give us today our daily bread, what is to come to mind is a turning to God for what you need to exist and know that God is the one who provides that. My wife and I have a, a, a friend, a couple who are Jewish friends, and uh, they live back on the East Coast. And one time when I was over in Washington, D.C., I called him up and said, hey, do, do you guys have any time? I'd like to come by and visit. And he said, sure. He said, uh, come over on Friday night and we'll let you help us welcome in the Sabbath. And so I got to go on a Friday night and go through the the rituals that they went through there on that Friday night, welcoming in the Sabbath. And a part of what they did was to say a blessing for the meal. And I learned that night that there's a blessing for really everything in the whole meal. Uh, But my friend said, uh, there's actually a shortcut. He said, we're taught to pray for the bread first. 
Because if you pray, uh, if you forget to pray for the bread first, then you actually have to pray for everything that you eat. You know, if you eat a salad, you got to pray for everything in the salad. If you eat the, the meat first, you got to pray for the meat and then the salad and then whatever you're drinking and then, you know, the bread. And you have to go in that order. He said, but if you start with the bread, he said sort of wink, wink, we know it counts for everything else. And I don't know if that's what Jesus was saying in the prayer, but it brought to mind the fact that when we pray, give us today our daily bread What comes to mind is more than just eating bread today. It's what God provides for our daily existence. And notice that it's not bread for a lifetime. You're not taught to pray to God for all the bread you might need forever. It's give us today what we need to meet the day's need. Give us today our daily bread. And then he follows that with a request for forgiveness. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. You know, the Bible uses different words, or the writers of Scripture use different words for the word sin. Uh, Sometimes the word sin, in fact, the most common use of the word sin, is a word that really means more like miss the mark. So the image that comes to mind is you shoot an arrow at a target. If you don't hit the bullseye, it gets off a little bit. You've missed the mark. And from a moral standpoint, that's what sin is. You know, there's a target. There's a way to behave, a way to live. And if you don't do it just right, you miss the mark. You missed out on the best. And so the word for that was hamartia. It just meant you missed the mark. And so that's a word for sin. Another word for sin is the word trespass. You know, there's a there's a line in the sand. Don't cross it. <clears throat> the image would be that of a you come up on a uh, fence and there on the fence is a sign. And it says private property, do not trespass, you know. And if you step over the fence, then somebody has the right to uh, uh, arrest you or fine you or whatever the penalty is. That's a trespass. And sometimes that's the word that's used in the New Testament for sin. But sometimes the word used is this word debt. And if you think about it, this is a good description of a sin that affects someone else. Have you ever had someone do something that is harmful, mischievous, annoying, harassing to you? And it feels like a debt. Now, some of you have borne very serious harm at the hands of other people. And you know what I mean when I say there is no possible way to repay that debt. Even though we use that terminology. You know, if somebody attacks Americans on foreign soil, you'll hear the president say, We will find, we will hunt down, and we will make them pay for what they have done. There's this language of there's a way to pay for a wrongdoing. We even have a a form of criminal justice uh, where you not only have restorative justice, but you also have the form of justice in which you are expected to pay back uh, for the harm that you've, you've caused. And so there's a form of justice that says you have to pay your debt to society, and we use that language, as if harm that is done can be repaid. But those of you who have suffered real harm know that any billionaire could walk in with a checkbook and offer any amount of money, and it would not cover the harm that you've suffered at the hands of somebody else. In most cases, the debt that is incurred because of wicked, evil behavior cannot be repaid. And I think you would agree. In reality, most debts of this kind cannot be repaid. They can only be forgiven. 
And that's why Jesus, in teaching us to pray, says, Father, forgive us of our debts. And then what comes to mind are all of those to whom you feel this debt because of what they've done to you. Just as I am now willing to forgive the debt of others. Now, notice the word here is forgiveness. It's not excuse. You're not asking God to excuse you for sin. That's our tendency is to say our prayers and say, God, I couldn't help myself. Uh, You know, just like Adam, it's this woman you put here with me that gave me the fruit and I ate. We tend to do that, sort of pass the buck to others. If I had not been in this circumstance, this would not have happened. God, please excuse my behavior. That's not what Jesus is teaching you to ask. Jesus is is teaching us to ask the creator of the universe to take the burden of what we have done and throw it away. The word there means to take something and move it far out of reach. And that is what we are expected to do for others who have harmed us. It's a very hard part of the prayer to pray. But it's important as you read on through the Sermon on the Mount, you realize just how important this is. But that's the part of the prayer in which we learn our relationship to God is one that we are not just in for ourselves. We are learning how we treat each other. This is our Father that we are praying to, and we learn to treat each other just as in this relationship that I have with God. And once we prayed for forgiveness, as we've forgiven others, we pray, and lead us not into temptation. Now, the word temptation there, in most cases, brings to mind uh, some type of pressure on our internal impulses to do something we know we shouldn't do. But that's not what this word temptation means. This word temptation really should be better translated testing. Uh, Sure, sometimes that desire to follow an impulse can be a test of your moral character. But there are other things that are a test of your moral character as well. And there are certainly things that are a test of who you really are. Remember when Jesus was taken up by Satan himself to be tempted in the desert. The, the word there is better translated. It was to be tested in the desert. And you remember the big test. The big test is, if you are the son of God, turn these stones into bread. Allow yourself to fall from this pinnacle and so forth. The test was not a temptation. It was not as if Jesus says, oh, I have this impulse to eat this bread. How am I going to resist? That's not what was going on. The test was, Are you who you really say you are? And I think you would agree with me that the last year and a half, going on two years now in this pandemic, has been a test of who we really are. Each day that you face, each frustration that you faced in the last year has been a test of whether or not you are who you say you are. As a follower of Christ, As a child of God, what we do may look very much like what our community does in responding to this or that threat. We roll with the risks. We do our best to protect each other. But the reason behind our action is different. Uh, The rest of the world is driven by either the disease itself or by misinformation or fear or stigma. But we're driven by something more. We're driven by truth and faith and love. And this last year has been a test of that. But make no mistake, the coronavirus eventually will be gone. 
will adapt. It will become endemic. It'll just be one of those other viruses that we deal with as human beings. But after that will be another test. There'll be other things that come that challenge you, that challenge our community, that challenge the entire world. The reason for this prayer will not go away once this particular test passes. And we are still taught to pray, our Father in heaven, lead us not into further testing, but deliver us, take us from here away from the testing and deliver us from evil. And guess what word Matthew uses to describe what Jesus taught them to pray for the word evil? It was that word, poneros, the word we read at the beginning. It's that Greek word that means a laborious, oppressive, malicious hardship that is harassing and never-ending. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from this evil. And some translations will say evil one, because the recognition is that sometimes evil is caused by the evil one himself. But this word could mean either. It could mean evil in general, or it could mean an evil one. I had a friend this week who is suffering from metastatic cancer. Uh, The cancer is oppressive. He is undergoing chemotherapy and radiation. And this is an extremely tough time. And there on the phone, he asked, he said, do you think I'm being targeted by the evil one? And we talked about that for a minute. Certainly there are examples of that in Scripture where Job was tested by the devil. There's times in the New Testament where the disciples, like Peter, were sifted as wheat, we're told, by the evil one himself. There are examples of that. But he and I couldn't say for sure. We said, well, if it is, then it's no different than if the oppression is just there because you suffer from a disease that's a part of living and being in a fallen world, a world that God will make right again someday. And you bear the burden of disease from being in a world that hasn't been made right yet. I said, but either way, he and I came to the conclusion that either way, the prayer is still the same. Today, our Father, lead us not into further testing, but deliver us from evil. And so I give you that prayer, and now you know where to find it. In Matthew chapter 6, recommendation is that you go home and that you find a quiet, private place, that you memorize the prayer, and then that you use it. But a couple of warnings before you start using the prayer or using it again for those of you that have memorized it. The first warning is these are not magic words. Jesus tells us right before teaching this prayer that we are not to heap up empty phrases as other pagans do thinking that they will be heard by God for many words. God's not hearing you because you say these specific phrases. These are not magic terms in that sense. This is about spending time with God, and Jesus teaches you how to do that by basically giving you an outline. Also recognize that you're not heard because you pray this in public. Jesus makes it very clear. This prayer is to be prayed in private. And remember that this prayer is not about a statement of who God is or trying to manipulate God. There is nothing in this prayer that will change what God does. This prayer is about changing you to be in line with God's will. 
And that's why we pray, be born into existence, your very will. And so I hope you will adopt this as an outline. And this week, find time on your own in a place of private to pray this prayer. It's a prayer for all ages. In our family, we teach this as the first prayer to our children. When they're first old enough to learn words and to pray, uh, they memorize this prayer. And it becomes the evening prayer daily for the early part of their life until they recognize, oh, this is an outline, and now I can put other things on the outline. And then each year before school, we go through this prayer again before starting the school year as a reminder that when you're in school, when you face those challenges, you have a prayer in your back pocket that you can pull out at any moment and follow the outline and and have it for your day. So I asked our son, who's six years old this morning, I said, hey, you say this prayer, you know, each day. And uh, he, it's funny, he knows where it's from. He goes, Matthew 6. And I said, yeah, that's, <laughs> you know, where it's from. I said, do you have any advice for people? And he said, what's advice? And I said, well, it's it's when you share with somebody else what's been helpful to you. And he said, he said, well, I pray at one time a day, but they're older, so they should use it two times a day. (laughs) (laughs) And so recognize that no matter how old you are, young, middle-aged, old, male, female, rich, poor, no matter where you're from or your station in life, this prayer is for you. Imagine Jesus on his knees, patting the ground next to him, saying, Come, kneel next to me, and together let's pray. Well, James concludes, as we said earlier, by saying that we should confess our sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. And so in our service this morning, we offer a time where we do just that. And so here in a moment... If you have a need, a concern, something that needs to be shared with the congregation as a whole, with those who are online, with those who are here, so that our elders can do exactly what James said to do and can pray for you, this is a great time to do that. If not, afterwards is a good time to find one of the elders to share with them. What is the need? What is the prayer? So that we can do exactly what we're told, and that is pray for each other. With that in mind, we offer you this lesson as we stand now and sing together.